we are going to be in Psalm 52 this morning. Psalm 52. We are continuing our sermon series as we study through the book of 1 Samuel, all the while taking these lovely detours to kind of get the behind the scenes of what's happening uh, with David. You get the narrative in 1 Samuel, and then you get the, the kind of the behind the scenes figuring out, you know, how could he possibly go on? What could he possibly be doing? How could he process his thoughts and worries and fears and anxieties? How can he deal with these things? And yet, we see week after week, he doesn't go and gossip about these things to his friends, but rather every single time he processes all of these emotions, the emotions that are not wrong to have, but it's what you do with them and how you process them is the most important portion. And for David, he processes them with the Lord in prayer. And this is the rubric by which we are to, uh, to bring our concerns to the Lord. We're to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Um, and so it's, it's our desire to learn how to go through life, how to navigate these things in our lives, our, the different circumstances and situations in such a way that we would know how to then uh, come to the Lord in prayer, how we would learn how to pray, you know, out our, our fears and our anxieties and our worries, that we would learn how to pray out, you know, these moments of celebration and joy and thanksgiving. And we follow uh, here David's pattern as we continue to look at uh, this contrast between the narrative and the behind the scenes that we grab, gather in the book of Psalms. <coughs> well, first, or excuse me, First Samuel twenty-two, uh, we get the story of David um, on the run. Of course, he's been on the run back. Uh, you know, as in the earlier chapters of uh, the book of 1 Samuel, I think somewhere around 17 or 18 is when he starts to go on the run. But in chapter 21, he kind of comes to a point where he's so desperate, he's got a lack of uh, food, he's starving, he's running out of energy, he doesn't have a weapon, and he's being pursued by these men that Saul, uh, who is the current king, they're, they're coming after him. And, and yet, um, as he is on the run, he's looking for sustenance, and so he comes to the city of Nob, this priestly city, and comes to the house of the Lord there and meets this uh, priest uh, uh, Ahimelech, and there he asks for provision, and the Lord provides uh, graciously for David through Ahimelech. Uh, last uh, last week we looked kind of at the contrast of the results and the consequences of what happened there of David uh, being a bit crafty with his words. In some senses, perhaps he was uh, lying. In some senses, perhaps he was trying to protect Ahimelech. If you go back and listen to our text uh, or the sermon from chapter 21, you'll kind of get the behind the scenes there of uh, what, what really went down there. But we find, nevertheless, that the result is that uh, this comes back to uh, haunt David, and he says as much to uh, Abiathar as Saul has summoned his uh his relatives there, not Saul's relatives, but Ahimelech and all of the priests to him and can, uh, and really um, executes all of them through the work of this guy Doeg. And we see that Doeg was somebody, David says, who was present all the way back in chapter 21. When David went to go get the provision from uh, Ahimelech, he saw that Doeg was there. We're, we're told explicitly uh, that in, in verse 7 of chapter 21, there was a certain man of the servants of Saul 
was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Right? And, and then we don't really get anything else in chapter 21. We're just given this little breadcrumb to kind of rem- remember, to kind of trace back. So when we come to chapter 22 and we find that Saul is upset and Saul is saying, like, how come, how come nobody can find David? And, you know, I'm amongst all my own tribe, uh, my tribe and my own clansmen, and they're not listening and nobody cares for me. And nobody sees me. And yet Doeg, who's not a part of his tribe, who, who's an outsider, he thinks, you know, here's an opportunity for me to kind of, you know, make a name for myself. Here's an opportunity for me to become valuable. You know, right now I'm just a herdsman. I'm kind of just some guy who's out with, you know, the the livestock and I'm not really anybody important, but if I brought this information to Saul, then he might think something of me. He might validate my existence. He might say, you know, Doeg, you're important after all. And so Doeg, does, he capitalizes on this. He shares the information uh, there, which uh, we'll get to some of that information shortly. But in the process there, he doesn't really prevent Saul from misunderstanding. He allows this to go to great lengths, and so much so that Saul becomes upset and summons the priests. He ends up commanding the men of Israel to kill the priests, and they're like, nah, you're crazy. This is not a good idea. They refuse, and Doeg again steps up, and he's the one who does this work. Now, as we come to Psalm 52, we get the insight behind what David is thinking here at the end. Because the because chapter, uh, chapter 22 ends this way. Uh, in verse 20, we read this, But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. David makes this confession and he sees that he's having this conversation now with the lone survivor, the lone surviving priest in this family. Now, as we come to the text in Psalm 52, we find here that it's described with its heading as being to the choir master, again, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So this is reflecting upon this narrative that we find in, in chapter 22. And, and I think when David writes this, he's writing this in hindsight. He's writing this uh, just after he has been told this bad news from uh, Abiathar, that he's just been informed of what's happened. And I think then he processes this before the Lord. He brings his concerns to the Lord because as he, as he approaches this psalm, he speaks as if he's almost speaking here directly to Doeg. You'll catch this as we move through the text. We read in verse 1 this. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. So it opens up with this question, a rhetorical question. Why do you boast of evil, almighty man? Now, as it opens up there, that idea of boasting, uh, of course, I think we have an idea of of what that means, uh, boasting or someone being quite arrogant and bragging. But here, it's actually more connected to the word praise. 
He's praising. He's, he's exulting here. And he, what, what David is getting at here is, is and he's, what he's asking here of this question is this, why are you praising evil? Why are you exulting and glorying in evil things, in evil acts? Why are you exalting the evil attitudes, the evil intentions? He moves on here, and he, he says, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? There's something here in this boasting, in this praising of, here it seems, of oneself that he's getting at. It seems like he's, he's referring to Doeg where this individual has some sort of self-satisfaction with his work, some self-confidence, like, I saw an opportunity, and I capitalized on it. I took advantage of this opportunity. Saul was there, and he needed somebody, and I was just a lowly herdsman, and then all of a sudden, I had the opportunity, I grasped onto it, I, I did this thing, and, and I made this happen for myself. I made this opportunity happen for myself. What David is getting at here is that this individual... Is, is really quite self-satisfied with, with his work, boasting in evil. So much so that he goes on, and David, it seems, plays along with this attitude uh, by calling him, O mighty man. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Right? Do you think that David was really kind of giving this uh, validation to this individual, Doeg? I don't think so. It seems what's happening here is that this is probably a sarcastic remark. Like, oh, tough guy, right? Nobody else wanted to participate. The rest of Saul's family was like, no, we're not going to execute the priests of the Lord. But you, you were just like, hey, like, I'll step up. Real tough guy, right? Even more so because the, we're told that the priests are also, they, they act defenseless. They don't run away. They're not like, oh, we're, we're, they're, not, they're not trained for war. They're not, you know, warriors. They're not soldiers. They're not prepared to fight back in the first place. They don't have weapons. But yet, Doeg here is going through and executing this group of people. And so, the wicked, those who practice evil, they convince themselves that, that they are mighty. Like, yeah, look at us. Look what we did. We went through we went through and, and we, we took the power for ourselves. There was an opportunity to exalt ourselves. There was an opportunity to move up in the, in the, in the social strata. There was an opportunity to be seen as, as greater in the eyes of this community. And I, gra I grasped that opportunity. I took advantage of that. But the reason why Doeg participates in this and I want you to get this, I want you to understand this, is precisely because he is insecure. He's insecure. This is why he participates in these acts of evil. He's insecure. This is an individual who feels insecure. Because what insecurity is, is it's a, it's a desire for security, which is a good desire, a regular fine desire for us to have this desire for security but insecurity is a desire that denies the truth of the gospel you have the desire for security but when when given the opportunity for security through the truth of the gospel you you deny it and 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 to be truthful we have to do take into consideration that sometimes this happens 
by careful consideration of the truth of the gospel and a direct refusal of the gospel. But then sometimes it's because you have a lack of knowledge of the gospel. You haven't heard the truth of the gospel. And so you're going to act in an insecure manner. You're going to do things to bring about security to yourself. Now, that also doesn't let us off the hook because that lack of knowledge is sometimes like literally you've never heard the truth of the gospel before. But sometimes it's an application problem. Sometimes it's an application problem. Sometimes you know what is true and you've heard the truth of the gospel, but you don't know how to apply it in your lives. You don't know how it applies to your life. You don't know how to use the gospel to navigate yourself, to navigate through life. But the gospel, the truth of the gospel there is meant to bring security. Because what it does is it recognizes that we have the ultimate weakness. We have the ultimate, uh, you know, uh, points of, uh, of vulnerability. It considers those points and recognizes that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot shore up all of our defenses to protect ourselves in every capacity. But then while simultaneously recognizing that we have that weakness by highlighting those things, then it also provides the solution that we find ultimate security in Christ. And so when we are feeling insecure, right, when we are acting in such a way where we are insecure, whether that would be about our financial position, whether that would be about our academic standing, whether that would be about your relationship status, whether that would be about, uh, you know, the, your, your like physical safety, whether it would be about your health. When we are acting in such a way where we feel insecure and we're grasping onto that, and that is something that we are making our identity, we're not making Christ our identity. Because when Christ is your identity, you have all the security in the world. Right, because there's no surprising him. He already knows all the weaknesses. And when, you're easy, when, when you can understand the truth of the gospel and you can, you can see that he knows how truly uh, desperate you are for help, you're just eager to, to latch onto that, to confess that, to recognize that, then you can also see that he hasn't taken advantage of you. Because what happens when you have a weakness, when you have an insecurity, when you have a vulnerability, that is precisely something that a predator would take advantage of. Somebody, something, somebody would, would come and try to manipulate you or to oppress you through that vulnerability. But Jesus never acts that way with us. He never acts that way with us. He only ever highlights our insecurities, our vulnerabilities, so that way he can come alongside and say, come with me. I will be your safekeeping. I will be the one that protects you. If you only are willing to stop protecting yourself. And really, this is, this is kind of the, the pivot point for all of us. Because you can simultaneously be with the people of God in the house of God. You can, you can think that you know what you're doing. But if you're not trusting in Christ for salvation, if you're not finding your identity in him... You're just protecting yourself in the house of God. You're, you're not being protected by the Lord. You're protecting yourself. It's okay to come in and to confess that we need help, that we're weak. It's okay to come in and say, God, you know exactly what I need. And you know what I'm afraid about other people in this room finding out about. 
But the reality is, it's like, just be real, like, we're all, like, in a, in a terrible situation because we're all, like, secretly really bad people. Sometimes we're not secretly really bad people, right? Sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, I was a huge jerk. Sorry about that. I wasn't Christ-like in my attitude. I wasn't representing Jesus correctly. But sometimes we're just like, we have, we've got all these this secrets that we think, you know, other people don't see, but, but we see. The thing that's great about, about being a Christian is that we are united by the cross. We all come there with equal need. We all come there and, are, and it levels the playing field for all of us. No, nobody's greater, nobody has less need. We all have need. So I'm not, you know, you know, like Jesus, he sees all the needs that we have. He sees all of the areas where we have sinned. We don't need to be, you know, pretending like we don't need Jesus. Like we do. That's why we, that's the only thing we talk about here at, at our church. <laughs> we only talk about Jesus. We don't go another route. We don't go another direction. We don't have another favorite topic. We have one message. And we just go down that path every week. Because he's the only one that can help us. Doeg is this self-made man. He's like, look, I'm going to take what you give me, take the opportunity. I'm going to capitalize on this opportunity. I'm going to be a little economical with the truth. I'm going to apply this in the way that I want to apply it. But then he wants to boast in his own success. Doeg goes his own way. He chooses that he's not going to uh, fall in with the men of Israel. But yet he wants to act in his own human strength, in his own self-centeredness. And so he boasts, it seems. David goes on and describes him, his actions, Doeg's actions, by the use, a continuing use of his tongue. First, he's said to have been one who boasts, so his destructive tongue is boasting. Then we find here in verse 2, your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. So he says, Doeg, the way that you use the truth can also be used in a way that is not profitable, that is not glorifying to God. You use your tongue in a way that brings about disaster or calamity is what this word destruction here means. And as you look through the scriptures, we find that the tongue is always a primary uh, a primary indicator of character. It's always like, if you want to know about somebody, just let them speak for a little bit. They'll, they'll end up, you know, burying themselves. The, the, if you look through the book of Proverbs, there's multiple Proverbs about, you know, how it's better if you just keep your mouth shut, right? It's better if you keep your mouth shut. We tend to get ourselves in trouble when we speak. Now, Doeg Doeg is one who is quick to use his words in the wrong way. He's quick to communicate in the wrong way. While it's simultaneously true that it's better to keep your mouth shut, the Proverbs also say that you should also use your words wisely. They should be uh, appropriate for the moment. They should be for building up. And so we have to be wise stewards of the, our opportunities here. And Doeg is an unwise steward. When he has his one moment to do something right, 
he chooses his, himself. As Christians, we have to be aware. We have to be aware of how we speak, how we communicate, because it's too easy for us to become like Doeg. I hope as you see, as we're moving through the passage here, this is more of our tendency than less of our tendency. Right? This is why the book of James so clearly says that the tongue is a small member of the body. It's, it's just this tiny portion, but it boasts great things. Right? It doesn't say like it leaves these eloquent soliloquies and builds up and like right? it doesn't it doesn't it says it boasts great things. Like the indicator that we find in the book of James is that it's boasting. So if you are going to boast, if you are going to praise, if you're going to exalt, you are either going to exalt self or you're going to use your tongue wisely to exalt the Lord, to bring glory to God. Now, Doeg is not one who wants to do this. Look at verse 3. David says this, You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. He thinks he's a clever guy, like, hey, I, I've got, I'm somebody who's navigated my way. I'm boasting about my situation. I, I see how I found myself in. I'm this mighty man. I'm communicating, you know, with, with such a way that I'm plotting destruction, but not my own destruction. And David says, he just, he just cuts to the chase. He's like, here's who you are. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. He loved evil more than good. The implication here is that not only is he attracted to this opportunity, but he enjoys it. He loves it. He, he, he uh, himself is about cultivating this opportunity for himself. He has this love of evil. And one way that love of evil is manifested is in speaking um, in lying, his standard of truth, and then also in his ethical values. Lying more than speaking what is right. So those are kind of like two categories that it puts it in. You can be truthful, but you also have to speak what is right. You have to speak the truth in the right moment, in the right atmosphere, in the right time. It has to be appropriate for the circumstance. Otherwise, it's not helpful. I think that this description that David brings in verse 3 of, of Doeg is, is something that is a bit sobering for us as Christians. Right? As we go through life, we have to consider, do we love evil more than good? Now, maybe not in the sense where you're just like, oh yeah, like I don't love evil because like I'm not like into like crazy, like, occult magic and, like, you know, weird, like, you know, animal sacrifices and, like, Satanism and, like, all that sort of stuff. Like, I don't think that's what he's getting at here. He, that's, not what he's, that's not what he's, like, remarking upon. For David, what he's saying here is that how he defines evil, it appears, is that you love yourself. You love yourself more than you love God. You've made an idol. You've pursued yourself above pursuing the Lord. 
And Doeg, you don't care about the people of God. You don't care about the things of God. You don't care about, about, even if you know something to be true, you don't care. You only care about what is good for you. And sometimes when we are people who are insecure, we are people who tend to operate in this manner. Where our lives are defined by self rather than service to the Lord. Our lives are defined by pursuing our own attitudes, our own perspectives, our own validation in the eyes of men. We want other people to say, like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's your, oh, that's a great way you thought about that. That's very clever. That's very smart. Oh, thank you for bringing that at this time. It's exactly what I needed. You see, that validates, you, that makes you feel validated. That helps you feel great. But none of that works. None of that works. You don't ever get that validation in the same sense from the Lord. Because your timing's not better than his, you can't bring him things he doesn't already have. There's nothing that you're going to surprise him like, oh, Lord, I see you had this need, and so I showed up with a bunch of stuff that you didn't already have. Like the, there's, there's no value there, right? There's no validation that you're going to get from that. But the scriptures tell us that he loved us when we were his enemies. God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So we have to stand in the truth of the gospel, not in what we can do for God, but what he has done for us. He has done for, what he's done for us. And we can't be manipulated by society. We can't be manipulated by our circumstances and our anxieties and our worries and our fears. We can't be thinking like, but these people are thinking about me in this way and I've got to do these things to make them happy. Because if I do that, then they'll be like, they'll think really good things about me. I think really good things about you because I know you need Jesus. <laughs> I know that there's nothing that we can do for each other that's going to be like worthwhile. Right? We're not here to benefit each other with just resources for what we can do for one another in the terms of uh, this, this earthly value system, but rather when we recognize that we are made in the image of God that he has given you value because he has paid for your sin. That's why we love one another, why we relate to one another, because we love the things that God loves. There's nothing that anybody has to do here to make yourselves lovely. We're just not, by default. We're only lovable because God has made us lovely. There is cleansing work at the cross. And David says here, we've got to love righteousness. We've got to love truth. Doeg, he loves evil more than good and lying more than, what is, than speaking what is right. He says, you love lying more than the truth. Look at verse 4. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. He's like, you have an intention to mislead. You, you, the only things that you like are the things that just make all deceit come. All the words that consume people. You only tell the truth up to a point where it's going to do the most harm. After that, you're going to back off. You're going to pour all the gas on the fire and throw the match in and watch it burn. This is how this individual is using his words. When you build 
your refuge and create your security by stringing together lies and deceit, you can be sure it's going to fall. This guy has built his life upon words of destruction, words of, uh, of deceitfulness, words that devour. So when you build your life upon things, they're about consuming and destroying. What do you think is going to happen to you? Sometimes, sometimes your life falls apart on its own because the lies that you tell, the words that you use, they quite, like, there's no way they can possibly keep the promises that they're making. It's just not going to happen. But ultimately, God is just going to come and see your house of lies and just knock it over. You're bent on destruction? Okay, let's give you what you want. Verse 5, but God will break you down forever. He's like, if you're all about destruction, if you're all about devouring, if this is how you want to live your life, okay, here you go. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. So the person, the person is broken down. The shelter is broken down. He will snatch you and tear you from your tent. So there's this idea of this house, this structure. Perhaps for Doeg, he has pitched his tent among the people of Israel, thinking, I'm here among the covenant people. I am in their midst. I belong to them. I've joined this family. And the Lord says, no, you haven't. Your tent doesn't belong here. I'm not sure why you're here. You're not with us. You're against me. You're opposed to me. I don't bring words that are destructive and devouring. Jesus says, I have come to bring life and life abundantly. It's Satan who is described as the one who has come to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus has come to bring life. And so he is broken down. The shelter is broken down. His... his uh, area of protection there. And then he's described being like a tree, uprooted and cast out. He will uproot you from the land of the living. It's the Lord performing these works. David says, I see your attitude. I see your action. I see your behaviors, but the Lord also sees, and he will deal with it. He will take care of it. He's going to come and remove you from his people. Now, the contrast here comes in verse 6. Because we see that one who was boasting is now being judged. One who was saying, I'm great. I'm this mighty man. I'm the one who has made these opportunities happen for myself. I've brought this together in such a way that I've taken advantage of you know, these opportunities. But now we find that the righteous are contrasted with the actions of Doeg. Verse 6, the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but, I trusted, in the but trusted in the abundance of riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So first we find this. The righteous are described as those who see and fear. So what does this mean, right? Because right after this, they are, they are described as laughing at him, right? So they're seeing and fearing, and then there's laughter. So we find first that Doeg is described as one who uh, 
is destructive with his tongue. He's boastful. He's oppressing God's people. But then we find now that the righteous see and fear, and then they laugh at him. What's going on? Okay, so here's what you need to know. First, the attitude that is being brought to this is not rejoicing particularly in the suffering of the wicked. But rather, this is a rejoicing in the perfect righteousness of God. It's rejoicing in the might and strength and faithfulness of God. Here's what I mean. As you look at the text, we find that this word see and fear can also kind of be translated in a way where it says that, uh, he, that they are awestruck. That they are standing back and watching and they're just like in awe at what God has done and accomplished. Here, it's in connection to his justice. But in other passages, it's similarly repeated. Uh, in Psalm 40, it's, it's also used in the context of God's deliverance. Uh, David opens up Psalm 40 saying this, He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. So he's in the circumstances situation where he's like, I've been rescued, I've been delivered, I've been lifted up. And then we're told, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. They look on and awestruck that God could rescue, that he could save. They're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe his might. I cannot believe his strength. How could I trust anyone else but God? Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And David says, the righteous, they are awestruck when they see the work of the Lord. When they see his faithfulness, when they see his goodness. But then the righteous laugh at him, at this boastful man. Saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Again, this is not about being vindictive or malicious. This is rejoicing in the Lord's power, in his strength, in his might. It's about reminding God's people that they can rejoice because they see that their stronghold is sure and firm and steady. That they don't have to worry when their stronghold comes under attack because it shall not be moved. So you can try to attack, you can bring all your might against the Lord, but it's just, it's just going to fall to pieces before him. And at a certain point, the efforts of the wicked against the Lord, it just becomes like comical, like, like really, you're going to keep coming, you're going to keep attacking, like, okay, go ahead, like, Right? It's almost like this, there's like this cartoonish uh, approach that we're in this, you know, transparent shelter from the Lord. And we're, we're here and we're, uh, you know, the enemy is on the outside trying to get us in, in here. Like the first time we see, you know, the enemy approaching and attacking and then all of a sudden, it, you know, this, uh, as, as the weapons fly against, against the Lord, they all fall to the ground. And then we're just like, oh, like that was, that was crazy. And then it happens again. And we're like, this is hilarious. Like you can just see them trying harder and harder. And 
it, at some point you're just like, this is amazing. Like you just, you're like joyful at the fact that you are safe, that you are secure, that you're just like, this is amazing. Right. And then you, at some point it just becomes comical and turns into like some Looney Tunes episode where you're like pulling out like, you know, the dinner right next to the wall and you see the enemies and you're just like, oh, we're having a great time here. It, turns, and it just gets like wilder and wilder because you are so sure in the Lord's work, in his safety, in his security and how he has provided. And so this isn't about rejoicing in uh, the death of the wicked. It isn't about minimizing or isn't about maximizing and, and being vindictive, but rather it's about celebrating God's faithfulness. When you realize that you have made the right choice, that God will be faithful. This is exactly why they say, see the man who would not make God his refuge. They're like, he had the opportunity to have the same thing that we have. Look at him. This is what happens when you don't choose the Lord. You could have this safety. You could have this security. You could trust in him. See the man who trusted, who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his own riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. It's like, he's an example He's an example of someone going their own way. Look at him. This is what it amounts to when you go your own way. But David says, here, when you are safe, when you are with the Lord, when your identity is in him, then you are in the courtyard of his house. There's a place for you to flourish, a place for you to grow strong, he describes himself in verse 8 this way, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God, right? So the olive is like one of the longest living trees. If you go to Israel today and you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, like they've like dated those trees and they're like, yeah, these are some of the oldest trees on the earth. Like they've preserved them. They, everything's like super legit there. Like they just will go on forever. It's, it's absolutely crazy. And here, the olive tree being one of the, the longest living trees, it's kind of reinforced at such a life-giving state that it says uh, it's a green olive tree, which it doesn't just mean that it gives off green olives, but it means in season that it's full of sap, that it's like pushing forth new buds from the roots. Uh, I read like so many articles about the life cycle of olive trees this week, I'll tell you. This is, this is super legit. There's, there's something where like the leaves of the olive tree stay on it for like a really long time. Like it's not like a tree that loses its leaves every year. They stay on it and eventually they'll start to turn yellow. But in the midst of that, like these new buds break out year after year. And it's, it comes from when everything else appears to be settling down on the outside, the roots push forth this, this sap like all the way out to the leaves and you get new bud break that produces this new fruit. And so it's like, not only is this an established tree, but it's one that's fruitful, that keeps producing, that is, has everything that it needs uh, for full nourishment. This is a green olive tree established, right, in the house of God. So David's saying like, this is like the most uh, flourishing that could take place. You're not going to get this anywhere else. He goes on and he says, in contrast and he says this, of course, in contrast to Doeg, who's said to be this tree that's going to be uprooted. It's going to be torn out. He's like a 
green olive tree that's established. He has true security in the house of God, and it's marked by trust. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever. What a contrast between Doeg, who's the one trusting in himself, in his own abundance of riches. He's trusting in his own destruction, but David's object of trust is the Lord, who will rule and reign forever and ever. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. He finishes in verse 9 with these words, I will thank you forever. Right, So God's love goes on forever. And then David says, by contrast, because your love goes on forever and because you will protect me forever, I will thank you forever. Right, So there's these three things that happen uh, connected. God's love is forever. I'm safe forever. I will thank you forever. Because you have done it. David's attitude, his life, is characterized by thanksgiving and praise, which is a huge contrast from Doeg. You have done it. He's expectant. He's hoping in the name of God. Whether that would be God's justice executed on Doeg and those who are described as being evil, or whether God keeping his word with his own people to be faithful to them. He's like, you are faithful and true. You are sure. And he finishes with this, which is like my favorite part. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Right? Seems like pretty straightforward, like pretty straightforward on the face of it. And I think it is. But this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the rubber meets the road. Because you see the whole trajectory of the psalm. You see all the things that he said. You see the contrast between Doeg and you see the contrast with David. How he's going to process, how he's going to find safety and security in the Lord. But what David says is this. It hasn't come yet. I haven't received all of the promises. And so he says, I will wait for your name. I will wait for your name, one. So there's patience. He's waiting for God. The name of God is connected to his character, all that he is, uh, all that he will become for David. We could do like a ton of sermons on just that one phrase. I will wait for your name. And then he says, for it is good. So he's going to wait, patience, relying on who God is, and then he says, in case it wasn't clear, your attitudes, your intentions, your thoughts towards me are good. For it is good. Right? So th this whole thing is happening here. And what, what he's doing here is he's continuing with an attitude of prayer and thanksgiving. So it's connected. It's part of his ability to trust. Thanksgiving is a part of his ability to trust. He's going to wait... He's going to trust in God's name. He's going to trust in God's intention that God is good. But then he does this. He says, in the presence of the godly. This is what we need to do as God's people, right? This is our bread and butter. This is why we always talk about doing everything that we do together in community. 
There's no such thing as individual Christians, right? You're not like somebody who's a Lone Ranger Christian. You make your own, your own choices, your own decisions in a vacuum. It's not just you deciding what you want to do in your life. This is why so much of what we do is surrounded or is decided around a dinner table. So much of what we do is conversed, decided, discussed around a meal. Because someone's coming and saying, hey, you know, here's what's going on in my life. I'm thinking about making this big job change, or I'm thinking about moving here, or I'm thinking about I want to go this way. And then the community comes together and says, all right, well, let's pray. Let's wait for the Lord. We know his intentions towards you. Let's pray together. Let's see what the Lord might do. We're coming alongside one another to bear these burdens together to help see this process through. Why? One, we're supposed to do this together in the presence of the godly. Right? We're supposed to process these things together, one, so that God is glorified, two, so we don't go off and make our own decisions and go our own way like Doeg and say, well, look, like, I know this is what I'm supposed to do, but like, I'm going to kind of go and come up with my own plans and my own ideas and do my own thing. This brings us an opportunity for accountability, but it also gives us an opportunity to rejoice at God's faithfulness when we do see him work. When we do see him come through, and we're like, yep, there it is. There it is. He came through again. He gave us direction. He gave us insight. And what we're essentially saying is, we trust you, God, to do what you said you're going to do. Now come through. Right? Show up. You've got to show up and you've got to teach us and instruct us. Because we're coming and we're saying, look, you asked us to come and wait and to be patient and to call on your name. And here we are. So if you don't show up, we're not just going to start coming up with ideas. We're going to wait until you give us instructions. Because it's not our plan, it's not our ideas, it's not where we're going. We want to be aware of what you're doing. We want to go with you in what you're accomplishing. It's not about us. We want to have success, but we can only have success if we know where you're going because where you go is where it's going to be successful, not where we're going to go. We can come up with good ideas all day, but they might not be God's ideas, so we don't want those ideas. We just, trust me, I have a lot of ideas you do not want to go through all my ideas. They're, a lot of them are really bad ideas. They're interesting ideas, but they're bad ideas. And they're especially, they're not God's ideas. So you have to wait until you figure out what are God's ideas. Where is he going? What's he doing? And this is important for us to wait on the name of the Lord, to recognize that he will give us exactly what we need when we need it, that he is good, that he wants to lead his people, that his attitude is towards directing us and instructing us and helping us pursue him. And it also, we have to do this together in the presence of the godly, in community, in such a way that it is beneficial for the building up of the church. Because when, when, when people see God's faithfulness, when they see his work, then we trust in him at a deeper level. And when we see his faithfulness, then it propels us into worship, which is what we're after anyways. We want people to see Jesus. We want people to recognize Jesus. And when you see him and recognize him, then you have to worship. Otherwise, you are encountering the truth of the gospel and then refusing the gospel. Right? And in that case, then you're moving back into that place as we started of insecurity. You're denying security that was offered to you in the truth of the gospel. So your op options are you can be insecure when you realize that insecurity. You can either 
believe the truth of the gospel, combat it with the truth of the gospel. If you don't know how to apply it in the truth of the gospel, then you bring it into the presence of the godly and community, and they help you process it with the truth of the gospel. And if you don't go there and you want to go your own way, then you're going to be somebody who will kind of be cast into that lot with Doeg, with the evildoers. Right? So the gospel is given to us so that we might know and enjoy Jesus. And when we know and enjoy Jesus, when we see him clearly, when we see that he is the only answer, then your only option then is to respond in worship. Because he's been faithful. He doesn't fail. He doesn't mess up. He doesn't let you down. And even when we were his enemies, he gave his life for us. So we owe him all allegiance, all praise, all thanksgiving like David. We want to thank him forever. We want to be secure in him forever. We want to wait for his name, for he is good. And so let's proclaim that together this morning in the presence of the godly. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, for your love towards us. We're thankful that your love is better than life. And when we are weak, Lord, you said that you would be strong. And so, Lord, we come and wholeheartedly confess our weakness this morning. We confess that, that, we're, that we need you. We need you so desperately. And that we don't want to come with our own ideas, our own opinions. We don't want to come with our own plans. But we need you to instruct us and teach us and direct us. We need you to, to take our attention away from ourselves. That can only happen if we see someone who is greater than ourselves and you are greater, you are better. And so we worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. We give you all thanks and glory and praise. And cause us to respond and worship now, Lord. We love you. Amen.